Wednesdays, ladies and gentlemen. It is Wednesday hump day, and we're going to be talking about passive investing. How do you do it? Where do you get started? That's what this one's all about. So let's get to it. Here we go. Shut up and sit down. Look, a business can give you everything you want in life. Prestige, wealth, freedom. It can also take everything away from you. This show is for those who are willing to take that risk. These are the real-life stories of entrepreneurs. But before we start, I have one small favor to ask. Please leave a comment. It can be advice, critiques, tips, feedback, or share this with someone because your engagement is the most valuable and most powerful form of social currency. So thank you, and welcome to another episode of Business Boss! All right, ladies and gents, real estate investing goes beyond buying a home or two. What if you wanted to invest in commercial buildings or industrial complexes or mobile home parks? How would you do it? I personally would find someone who's already done it and either learn from them or invest with them. And that's exactly what our guest does. Not all real estate syndications are created equal, by the way. So let's hear all about how working with the Bishop Investing Group can help shorten that learning curve and help increase your ROI. Let's talk real estate syndication with Mr. Michael Bishop. Always a party when you're on the business, bros. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, let's jump into this thing. Michael, everybody who gets into real estate that I talk to, oftentimes it was like one of two things. I grew up with it or I kind of stumbled upon it. What's your background? How'd you get into this space? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, for, for me, it was a little bit of both. Um, so I grew up with a passion and interest in personal finance and investing. No clue where it came from, but it's been there for quite literally as long as I can remember. Uh, and then post-graduation, I moved to Austin, Texas to take a W-2 job um, working in tech. And uh, I was on the night shift with some folks and, and I had several conversations with this older than me gentleman, but not, not very old. Uh, and he was telling me about how he had over the years acquired a pretty, pretty nice portfolio of single family homes in the Austin, Texas area. And that really, really sparked my um, sparked my interest, one, as just kind of a hobby and a way to make money myself, but also kind of fit that key uh, interest in personal finance and investing. So it was pretty shortly after that, I talked to my, my then girlfriend, now wife about it, and we decided, hey, let's, let's give this a go. Let's get into it. And it didn't take very long after the acquisition of our first property to realize like this was not going to scale the way that we wanted it to scale you know, being pretty early on in our career, we just kind of didn't have the capital to um, to move the way that we wanted to move, right? So I decided at that point, hey, if this guy's got this story, there's got to be other folks with similar stories in the real estate space. So I pretty much just started reaching out to everybody I I could. I was on a couple forums and I was just kind of following along to people who uh, contributed often and looked like they were doing interesting things. And I was just reaching out, asking people to meet you know, meet up for coffee, buy them lunch, whatever, just to kind of hear their story and get different perspectives on the real estate world. And I met <clears throat> somewhere along the line there, I met my, uh, who turned out to be my, my mentor uh, in the real estate syndication space. We had this couple hour long meeting where he kind of described what real estate syndication is to me. And this whole time, you know, I'm, I'm head nodding, but in my head, I'm going, I got to get involved in this. This is a perfect mix of this newfound passion for real estate and this long-standing passion for personal finance and investing and helping other folks secure their financial future. Uh, and then it was probably three months-ish, maybe three and a half after that initial meeting 
that I had formatted my LLC, learned a heck of a lot more about the real estate syndication space and participated in my first project. And that was early 2018. Uh, and it's been a ride since then. Dude, first of all, isn't it crazy how when you're at your W-2 job and you you don't have a clue as to what that future is going to hold, but somebody just happened to like shed some light on an opportunity and you're like, wait a minute, you normal average W-2 guy just like me, but you have all these properties? Like, how did you do that? Isn't it amazing how like you never know where life's going to take you, but you kind of stumble upon the opportunities. Um, and my, my question to you really is, you started dabbling in this. You bought a property. You realized you couldn't scale. Um, like, what did it take for you to actually make that next step? Because I can imagine when you're talking to this to this now mentor that you have, and he's shedding, uh, you know, he's shedding all light on what he's doing, and you're head nodding. I can imagine. I, I remember being in a similar situation, and I'm listening to this person. And I'm like, yes. Yes, but in the back of my head, I'm thinking, what the, what are you talking about? Like, there's some stuff in here that I don't know what you mean. How did that kind of help influence where you decided to make this person your mentor and actually take the steps necessary to start doing it? Yeah, definitely. So there's two points I'll make on that. One is it absolutely is crazy how you can just stumble across these things in your W-2 world. Uh, I recently had the opportunity to see that come full circle because I just told the story about how I got introduced to real estate from one of my coworkers. I actually just had the opportunity to give a presentation at my W-2 job, Salesforce, uh, at a, you know, a fairly large internal um, financial freedom podcast. And I've had the opportunity to help a lot of people kind of explore the syndication space because of that. So really, really cool to see it come full circle. And absolutely, that opportunity can present itself just kind of out of nowhere. So, you know, you just have to be ready for it. And I would say that's what helped me take that next step in the syndication space is I was ready for it. In my mind, I knew that I was looking for something to do outside of uh, my W-2 that could be both a, a passion, you know, a, a hobby and an additional way to make money. So I've never been kind of a, a stand by the wayside and let things happen type of guy. When I really know I want something, I, I just go after it, whether I know that I can do it or not. And, and in fact, I sometimes suffer from imposter syndrome because of that, but that's a whole different topic. Uh, and you just kind of have to fight through that. And then another big thing for me is I, right after that meeting, I met up with my wife at a park in Austin, Texas, and I kind of started telling her about the syndication space and how excited I was about it. And I think she could see it in my face and hear it in my voice. And I just couldn't stop rambling. And she really, really pushed me to go for it. So I was kind of already leaning that way. And then to hear her go, you should do it. No question about it. It was, that was it. Decision made in the same day. Yeah, the power of that person who's supporting you. Well, let's yeah. talk about this, right? Because you said when you first bought your property, you realized you couldn't scale this thing. In other words, in your mind, you had money limits, right? There were limits on what you could go out and purchase. Uh, and I think that kind of set mindset limits on you as well. Yeah. How did you flip that switch? I mean, the excitement is one thing, but then turning around and saying, how does this thing actually happen? How do I create this scalable real estate business, essentially using other people's money, but how did you, who is barely getting in the space, get yourself in a position where you could do that? Yeah, I mean, it was really fighting through some of those imposter syndrome feelings or feelings like I was kind of out of place. Uh, I was a fairly young man at that point, especially for uh, the, the industry as a whole. So I had to kind of struggle with that too. See, and folks who had these really large networks of people who were qualified to invest in these deals that they can kind of lean on and start to introduce these deals to those networks. I had 
you know, a very limited network at that point. I don't come from a rich background. I, you know, I don't have a lot of wealthy family members. I don't have a lot of wealthy connections. I was very early on in my career. So I didn't know a lot of people to work who had, who were those high income earners or high net worth individuals who could invest in these deals. So it was a lot about um, persistence and just, you know, taking examples of what other folks have done. And one thing I believe in, and the point I'm making here is that if, if somebody else can do it, that's proven to me that I can do it. So I've seen all these other people do it. I've learned from them. And, and I know that as long as I persist and keep pushing and keep making the right steps on a daily basis, then, then I can get there too. And, and one of the secrets to that too, at least in my mind, is not to look at the end goal or what your end purpose is all the time, because that can be very, very daunting and overwhelming and cause you to slow things down or question yourself or whatever, but instead look at it in short chunks, daily, weekly, monthly, on what you can get done now that you know will contribute to that end goal. So it was a lot of factors that really went into it for me. Um, and quite honestly, it's still a work in progress to continue to flip that mind, mindset. Uh, and you know, having a supporting cast behind you certainly helps. I've also never been a person who uh, questions my knowledge or my ability to learn something. In fact, I always seek out things to learn. I, if I'm not learning things or progressing, I get stagnant and that's when you know, things start to go south for me. So I kind of viewed it a little bit as a challenge, you know, to become an expert in this space and learn everything I could so that I can help other folks. So that helped motivate me as well. So once you got into this space, you found a mentor who's, who's showing you all the ropes uh, and now it's time to actually put the pedal to the metal to actually construct and put together that first deal. Walk me through what that process was like and what it felt like to achieve success or did you? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, did I? Um, so I've progressively gotten more successful over time, obviously. When I first started, like I said, I had that really, really small network and I wasn't getting a whole lot of interest or bites or not finding a whole lot of people that I was going to be able to help. Uh, I actually did start, you know, on my personal network and, you know, it kind of grew from there. But uh, just to kind of clarify where I'm at with things, I'm not the actual group going out there and identifying, underwriting, acquiring these properties. And day-to-day -day operations of the property. Instead, I partner with those groups and then I focus majority of my effort on the passive investor, limited partner, folks like you and I who want to invest in these deals passively. I help them identify projects to invest in and then I also handle investor relations for um, that group that is doing the day-to-day -day stuff. I, I manage relations between the individual investors that I bring on. So it's not, you know, just to clarify your statement on how did you structure this deal, it was more about uh, introducing these projects to my network and being in a space where I was able to uh, coach them up on what syndication is. Cause for most of them, it was a, a very new concept. And that's still what I deal with on a daily basis is a lot of folks are not familiar with the syndication space or the powers that it has, or even what the heck it is, you know? So um, just always making sure I'm in a position to be able to help those folks understand it and make an informed decision, whether that's to actually do it or if it's not the right case for them. Let's make sure we clarify that, right? Because I'm I, I'm always operating a lot of times under the assumption because I know somebody else obviously knows, and that's not always the case, right? Yeah. So let, let let's assume that you're talking to somebody in the audience, and they're like, "Real estate syndication? What's that? How's that different from buying, you know, a rental property? What's what's going on here? What are they talking about?" Yeah, real estate syndication. The the at a very very high level, and the simplest I can explain it is a pooling of resources to get something done. So as opposed to a more active role where maybe you're working with like a realtor and a 
and a banker to get a loan and then identify a single family home. And then you manage it, you put the tenants in it, you clean it when there's vacancies, you know, you deal with all the, the headaches, the toilets, the plumbing, the, all that stuff. Uh, syndication is more a bunch of parties coming together to accomplish this big goal and take down this big project that one of those resources probably wouldn't, able, wouldn't have been able to do alone. So for example, in a syndication, you have the general partner who's responsible for things like um, identifying, sourcing, underwriting, and acquiring properties, managing the property management group if they don't have their own property management group, managing the construction management group, um, asset management, uh, marketing the, the, the project, the property, all of these things. You have the limited partner who folks like you and I who come in and we, our role is to essentially provide the equity needed to close on these things. Then you have the lender who's providing the, um, the debt to close on these deals. Then you have construction management, property management, uh, legal teams, CPAs. You have all these different parties that come together to, to tackle this one big project. So again, just to recap, syndication at a high level, pooling of resources to take down a big commercial real estate asset in, in this context. I love that. I love that. So let's let's talk a little bit to clarify um, that idea of passive and limited partnerships, right? Because I mm -hmm. think for a lot of people, they're like, I want to be a limited partner, but is how risky is this? Am I going to be liable? Like, what happens if the place floods? Do I have to go and like, you know, go in and, and cough up more money? How does that work? Please explain, you know, what is, what do you mean by passive for an investor who comes into the deal? And how does that relate to being a limited partner? Yeah, so there's no such thing in my mind as 100% passive. There's always going to be some sort of vetting that you have to do up front or some sort of work that you have to do to get into a deal. Um, just like vetting a company that you want to invest uh, in their stocks, you, you should probably vet the sponsor or the operator of a real estate syndication model to, to know that you trust this operator, they have good experience, they're good people, they have gone full cycle on deals and they've performed, things like that. But in terms of passiveness, it is about as passive as it gets in my mind. And the, the risk, of course, there's risk associated with it. Uh, there's risk in, associated with all real estate or uh, any type of investment, but your risk is limited to what your investment is, hence the limited partner status. So say you own a, a single family home and some tragedy happens, your tenant, uh, you're renting it out and your tenant slips and cracks their back. They can come after you and your personal assets if you don't have that uh, LLC type of umbrella protection. Whereas in a syndication model, things go horribly wrong. Now, this could happen, but it's, it's very unlikely. Say things go horribly long, wrong, operator defaults on the loan or you know whatever else happens. There's a big lawsuit for whatever reason. Uh, they could not, nobody could come after the limited partner's personal assets. It's strictly limited to their investment in the deal. Let's talk uh, exit strategy here because I was always taught in the real estate space. I mean, my background is in is, is a lot of real estate stuff. Um, whenever you go into a deal, you should always be considering your exit strategy. Yeah. So when it comes to real estate syndications, what is an exit strategy for an investor and, and how long are funds usually tied up for? Yeah, so typical hold period projected is a, anywhere in the three to seven year range with about five being average. Um, and I will say that that's not, in my experience, what tends to be the case. Uh, from the deals that I've exited with our partners, it's about two and a half years as opposed to that five-year projected average. But we want to be you know, slightly conservative and, and assume that we're going to hold it for longer. Now, when an investor does get in these deals, they should consider them 
fairly illiquid because it's not like you can sell your position in this deal on the open market or I couldn't come to you and say, hey, I'm invested in the syndication space at $50,000. Do you want my spot for 60? Whatever. It is. That's not how that works. Uh, now, if you pick the right operator, this goes back to vetting the operator, making sure they're good, decent people and have the best interest of everybody in mind. Uh, most of them will probably work with you if you really, really need out. Now, if you just go, hey, I don't like this deal anymore. Can I get out? They're going to remind you of what the legal document said that you signed. But if it's, hey, I had a life hardship or, hey, I really need this money for whatever, most of them, good, genuine operators uh, are, are going to work with you. Now, in terms of an exit strategy from the operator side, so that kind of covers it from the limited partner side. You can't just sell it on the open market. You have to rely on some sort of equity event from the operator whether that's a supplemental loan during a hold or whether that they actually exit after a couple of years, right? So generally a well-written, well-underwritten deal um, or an operator that's fairly conservative and wants to kind of cover all grounds, they're going to consider multiple exit strategies. So they're not going to pigeonhole themselves in the business model and say, this is exactly how we're exiting this property by selling to XYZ purchaser on blank date. They're more so going to give a broad range of date um, to give a lot of flexibility because we never know what the market conditions are going to be in a very specific time period, right? So you want to keep a pretty broad uh, date range open to allow for that flexibility. And then also the purchaser pool, you should be considering um, REITs, family offices, insurance companies, other syndicators, uh, big institutional money, multifamily investors. So really you want to expand your buyer pool, your potential buyer pool as, as large as possible. And those are the, like the ones I just named, there are other syndicators uh, and in which context you would want to leave some meat on the bones for them. What I mean by that is some way that they can continue to increase the value of the property. Um, and then, you know, REITs or big institutional money, those are like the really common ones that come in and buy a syndicated commercial there, real estate asset. There's also limitations on like SEC limitations on like who can get involved and yep. like what type of investments they can get involved in. Um, and we're currently going through a pretty significant change, especially in the real estate space because of just the availability of funds. It's more expensive to borrow money, plain and simple, mm -hmm. right? How's the changing market affecting your, your pool of people who are able to come in with some of that liquid cash to put down uh, and what type of person can invest? Yeah, so we've seen no real change in the pool of people who are capable of investing in these deals. We may have seen some shift in sentiment about, you know, worries about the market and things like that. That, that in my mind, is separate from the pool of folks. But we haven't seen any changes yet in, in the pool of people who are qualified for these deals. And when I say qualify, I mean, this is a private placement investment. That's what real estate syndication is. So what that means is it's not registered on a stock market, but it is filed with the SEC under Regulation D, structured as a 506B Regulation D or a 506C Regulation D. And basically those just, um, they govern how you can market those deals and who you can let into the deal. So one of them you can market openly to the public, but you can only allow not uh, allow accredited investors in, and I'll get to that in a moment. And the other one you can um, not market to the open public, but you can allow accredited or non-accredited/slash sophisticated investors in. Back to the accredited investor point, 
An accredited investor, for those who don't know, is uh, an individual who earns $200,000 per year for the past two years and expects to earn the same in the current year, or a married couple that earns $300,000 for the past two years and expects to earn the same in the current year, or either one of those that have a net worth of $1 million, excluding the equity in their primary residence. There's other ways to be accredited through licensure and uh, businesses can be accredited for having a certain amount of money, uh, valuation, things like that. But for, for most folks, especially the folks that we're dealing with, it's one of those 200,000, 300,000 or a million dollar net worth requirement. That's uh, always, that, again, that's not everybody, right? But that also explains why that buyer pool is not really drying up. People who tend to be at that income level tend to stay at that income level just because it's, it's a different world at that space, right? Um, let's talk about the projects that you guys are getting into. So, you know, every real estate investor has their niche. Some people are all about, you know, mobile home parks. Some people are about commercial buildings, malls, uh, apartment complexes. What's the, uh, what's your bread and butter? What's the project, uh, scope that you guys tend to go for, uh, and fund for, for your types of syndications? Yeah. Bread and butter is multifamily, commercial multifamily and commercial technically is anything over four units, but we don't really look at anything that's not that's any less than a hundred units is on the small side. We're typically bigger than that. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Demand stays really persistent regardless of what's happening in the market. Um, investors tend to be more familiar with commercial multifamily. You know, it's a, it's a dwelling. Everybody has a need for a living space. And a lot of these folks have lived in apartments themselves. So they tend to be a little bit more comfortable with multifamily as opposed to something they don't understand quite as much like um, industrial for example. Uh, and then we also just, we're just seeing a lot more demand for multifamily investments, but we also are very big on diversification. Always encourage folks to diversify as much as possible, whether that's geographically, if you're in the same asset class or uh, among sponsor operators, if you're in the same asset class or um, ideally among different asset classes, different operators and different markets. So that's just one man's opinion, diversify as much as possible. So because of that philosophy, we went out and um, secured partnerships with, with various different operators and a bunch of different markets, different levels of experience and different asset classes. And those different asset classes are commercial multifamily, like I mentioned, but also self-storage and mobile home parks. I love that the commercial uh, residential commercial stuff is is amazing and rents have been going up recently. I mean, in the last few years, like it's just it's just ridiculous. We need more stuff. Even in my neighborhood, as I drive around, I'm in San Diego. You don't see single family homes under construction for new homes as much compared to nope. multiple apartment buildings. And like you said, they're not small. They're not like eight units or 16 units. We're talking a hundred units that are going up, multi-complexes that are going up. Um, what's your guys' uh, like perspectives for like the next couple of years when it comes to residential uh, like rents? Like, is it continuing to go up? Are we going to meet that demand or is it going to be like something that that's going to be in high demand for the next few, I don't know, years, decades? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty long conversation, but some, you know, some high level thoughts on it. I, I don't see the demand going away. Everybody needs a dwelling, particularly in a time like right now, you know, people get nervous about the market, but when you think about um, the fundamentals of it, what are we nervous about? Rising interest rates, right? It's one of the mm -hmm. primary things. Of course, there's all sorts of other monetary and, and political policies and things that go into it, but rising interest rates is a big topic right now. So what does that result in? Um, 
much higher interest rates on a single family home or somebody trying to purchase their own residence, right? And because of that, you have a much higher monthly payment, you have a much higher total cost, uh, and it discourages buying really is what we're seeing. So that uh, the demand for rent either stays the same or quite frankly, goes up in times like these. Now, you might see the, the rent growth rate decrease uh, during times of economic compression, like we are a little bit right now, where, you know, it's pretty uncommon to see the $300 a month increase over a year right now, but not to say we're not seeing it, but they are compressing uh, a little bit. And then pretty much every corner you turn, any big uh, banking industry and or commercial real estate analytics firm or whatever, they're all saying pretty much the same thing. The demand for multifamily units is drastically outpacing the supply of multifamily units. So, you know, because of those things, strictly because of those things, and there's other factors that go into it as well, in my opinion, but just those alone um, make me pretty confident in the way that the direction that commercial multifamily is moving. Now, I know you can never guarantee return on investments or, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, based on some of those deals you, you've, you've done so far, what is the typical investor? What can they kind of expect? Yeah, uh, the caveat, you, you already put that disclaimer past performance does not indicate, you know, any, you know, future returns, but um, it's probably one of the best things to look at to kind of get an idea of what you're looking at, right? Especially you're a vet and an operator, you want to see what their past performance was, and you want to compare it to different asset classes that you have the option to invest in. So fair enough. Um, for, for us, we've, I've personally gone full cycle on, I think it's 10 deals at this point. And don't mark my number or don't mark my words on this number. You can go to my website to check it, www.bishopinvestinggroup.com slash portfolio. Uh, but we've exited 10, pretty sure at this point. And our average numbers are about a two and a half year hold, roughly. Uh, and again, those are projected on average about five year hold. So about in half the time. And our, our equity multiple, there's two primary return metrics that, that I measure these things on. Equity multiple is Strictly, you take the capital that you invest in a deal, you multiply it by this equity multiple. That's the total cash in hand at the end of the deal, regardless of how long you held the property, right? So it could be five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Equity multiple is that number. And then there's the IIR, which is like a time factor, time factored return, percentage return. So 20% per year type of deal, right? Average for us on two and a half years is about a 1.7 equity multiple. Uh, and a 20-something IRR, meaning you invested $100,000. I, I like to use equity multiple because to me, it's the easiest to understand. And as long as you understand what that average hold period is, you can kind of understand how much your money's growing per year and compare it to other asset classes, right? So 1.7 equity multiple, what that means is you invest $100,000 in a deal, for example, in two and a half years, you have $170,000 in hand, including return of equity, distributions, and profits from any equity event like a sale. And that's awesome. I mean, that's the thing about real estate, right? We get to benefit on appreciation. I didn't ask that, but do you get to benefit on depreciation as well? Or is it, uh, is it just uh, money in, money out? Yeah, no, that's a huge question, actually, because there are various different tax advantages and tax benefits to these types of investments, especially to the folks who qualify, because they tend to be higher income, higher net worth folks who need tax shelters, to be quite frank. Um, so you do get the benefit of depreciation and subject to potentially change in the future, because I know the SEC and all of them, they're looking at potentially changing this stuff. But right now, 
Um, what that looks like is in commercial real estate, you can expedite the 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 um, depreciation of an asset. So as opposed to right, depreciating an asset over that standard, I think it's 15, 39 and a half years or something like that. You, that yeah, commercial. For, commercial is a little bit shorter, but whatever it is, 1530 doesn't matter because the expediting that depreciation looks more like a couple years or, you know, for mm -hmm. the, the length of your hold. So you're able to depreciate a lot more and that is a pass through taxation. So that doesn't just go to the business or just the operators of the business. It's those savings are passed through to the limited partner in the form of a schedule K one tax statement. And essentially that just shows what your um, paper loss is comparative to what your distributions were in that year. So I'll give an easy example. Say you made an operator made an 8% distribution in year one and you invest $100,000. That equates to $8,000, right? It's not uncommon at all. And in fact, it's more likely to be the case from my experience that you will show a paper loss that exceeds those gains. So they pass through those depreciations to the limited partner. Maybe that's $10,000 passive loss. Now your K-1 statement shows a negative gain of, of negative $2,000 for that investment. So instead of paying taxes on your $8,000 gain, you now have a $2,000 loss that you're not paying taxes on. And in fact, you can use that to offset passive other types of passive income. Again, a disclaimer, talk to your CPA. I'm not a CPA, but I know generally how this works in the syndication space. I've seen it done in multiple deals. We talked about tax advantages. I'm going to touch on this briefly. I know you didn't ask about it, but Another tax advantage is the 1031. And for those who are not familiar with what a 1031 is, is essentially it is letting an intermediary hold your gains from the sale of a property and putting those gains without touching them into a like-for-like -like asset uh, without taking any of the money out and without paying any taxes on it. So invest $100,000. At the end, you have 150,000. This is just an easy example, right? Uh, don't touch it put it in an intermediary bank, invest $150,000 into the next like-for-like -like asset, meaning commercial multifamily has to go to commercial multifamily. Industrial to a single family home is gonna be a lot more challenging, right? There's ways to get it done, but way more challenging. Um, so by participating in these things, which most of our operators, that's always their goal is the 1031. We can't guarantee it because there are stipulations we can talk about that. It's rules and regulations with the IRS, man. <laughs> lots of lots of rules and regulations, and that's that's actually a really good thing for passive investors. Honestly, it can be you know it can be kind of a hassle, or even for passive investors, sometimes going through these different verification that you're accredited process and all these things. But it's all to protect the passive investor, so it's all really good. Pain pain in the butt or not. Um, so basically, what you get from these 1031s is that instead of paying taxes on that $50,000 gain from my example, I get to roll it into the next deal and grow those gains tax-free. Now, let me be very clear here. This is a tax deferral, not a tax avoidance, because you're basically just kicking the can down the road. You're eventually going to pay taxes on those things, but you get to grow those gains tax-free. You can imagine how investing $150,000 is a heck of a lot different from investing 130, particularly because most of these folks are in the top tiers of tax brackets. So they're paying a, a nice chunk of their gains in, in capital gains taxes. So those two tax benefits are huge.
And it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of strategies. Technically, you can rock that 1031 and that never actually pay the taxes. It only happens when you dispose the asset. And at that point, the gains or losses are when you get reported on your tax return. So what we're doing with the 1031 essentially is we're not selling the asset ourselves. That's where the intermediary, intermediary person is involved, right? So that you can uh, you can lock that money up and then and then reuse it. Ten thirty ones are amazing, ladies and gents. Depreciation yep. is amazing. Section one seventy nine is amazing <laughs> for a lot of the stuff that you want to do come tax time. So yeah, absolutely, uh, Mike. We're running low on time. Before we head out, man, you dropped so much knowledge today. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you're doing, what you're up to, or maybe even become investors themselves? Hey, thanks. I appreciate that. The best way to get a hold of me, I'm not super active on social. Um, I don't send out a lot of spam emails or anything like that. If you join my list, I keep it to essentially a newsletter and uh, deal announcements. So best way to reach me is just at my website. All my contact information is there. You can find my email. You can find my personal phone number. Uh, you can join uh, my investor list, which, as I just mentioned, would get you a monthly or bi-monthly newsletter and deal announcements. That's about it. And then I, I like to, you know, I got into this space to help people as much as I possibly can. So I like to make myself as available as possible. So email me, text me, whatever. And then I have a link to schedule calls with me as well from my website where, you know, always have it hop on calls. I just can't be quite as flexible as I am with, with email and text messages. But that's the best way to contact me and learn more is at my website. Um, I'm sure you'll share, but it's www.bishopinvestinggroup.com. And it's scrolling right there at the bottom of the screen, ladies and gents. But if you're on audio only, bishopinvestinggroup.com. And look, let me tell you guys, I know you're interested in real estate and maybe you don't know anything about real estate, but so what? That's exactly the same position that Mike was in. And guess what? Everybody starts at zero. Everybody starts with zero knowledge, zero friends, zero followers, but they work at it. Just like Michael decided that he was going to do it. The excitement in his voice when he went to talk to his girlfriend, now wife, and telling her about this opportunity, there's a fire lighting under your butt. You just need to know who to talk to. So scroll on your uh, go down to your your phone or whatever it is chrome safari i don't care what it is go to bishop invest bishopinvestinggroup.com schedule an appointment with mike and at least have a conversation that conversation might open the doors might open the opportunities might trigger something in your mind that lights the fire under your butt and starts making things happen thank you very much mike for coming on the show ladies and gents we'll catch you guys on the next one peace and we're out it's over go home is your business in need of marketing? Try starting a podcast. But not just any podcast. Podcast like a pro. We can show you how to take your business from being invisible to becoming a brand people trust. Go to www.businessbros.biz to get started today.